There was no evidence that governor, that, that uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around other people's well, elections, yeah. Mm, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rackets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. This podcast covers a number of topics related to organized crime, such as you know drug cartels and mafia families, but it also goes into white-collar crimes, such as politics. And that's why um, I'm really focused on just a couple of main topics today. And the first topic is really cybercrime. Cybersecurity is of the utmost importance nowadays, but in, and that's really only going to increase in, in importance as technology grows. But there's one story in particular that I wanted to talk about where it's sort of that blend of traditional theft and cyber theft. In the city of San Francisco, there were over 30 members of local street gangs who were guilty of, of credit card fraud. They literally broke in to a, a number of different medical and dental offices and they stole the records, credit card records of several different patients. And local authorities, they say that roughly around over a million dollars of fraud had taken place. You know, there's a number of different ways in which, you know, your, your credit card information can be stolen. But I really want to talk about a different um, type of hacking, and it's hackers that are presumed to be connected with different foreign governments. And there's a recent indictment um, by, the, by the DOJ of a group known as the Lazarus Group. That's the unofficial name of a hacking group that is believed to be in connection with the North Korean government. They're presumed to be behind the 2014 attack on Sony. They're also uh, accused of being responsible for the WannaCry malware attack that happened back in 2017. They're accused of stealing $81 million of bank in Bangladesh. Also um, accused of trying to steal, you know, over a hundred million dollars from a series of different African banks. Now, in that particular attempt, they were not successful. And again, I'm not trying to knock Bitcoin in general, but one of the things, I mean, if if you want to put your money in Bitcoin, go for it. I don't. I'm not going to tell anybody how to run their life. Um, but one thing that that is without a doubt is that a lot of times Bitcoin is used for laundering all kinds of different illegal funds and there's what i think really should have been a much bigger case in the media a russian national who was arrested in greece his name is alexander vinnick he was wanted in actually three different countries uh, for extradition in france the u.s and russia and there was essentially this this confrontation over who would get who would get to bring him home? This guy Vinnick, the United States has accused him of, of setting up a company, which is base, basically a sham company, in order to launder billions of dollars of illegal funds. 
He was the executive of, of a company called BTCE, which was a, a Bitcoin exchange that it's no longer in business. And essentially, if, if all of the accusations are correct, they had basically no form of money laundering controls in place. So it was essentially a prime source for money laundering for a number of different criminal organizations. That company was located in Bulgaria. It catered to criminals, according to the DOJ. And in particular, money that was supposedly laundered through this organization was in relation to another Bitcoin exchange called Mt. Gox. This was a, uh, an exchange in Japan that actually went bankrupt as a result of a hack. Maybe I, I could word that better. Supposedly the hackers who brought down that Bitcoin exchange laundered their funds through BTCE, which is the company of the guy Vinick, who I, I just mentioned earlier. Uh, but to kind of round it up, Russia was actually the country that, that won the extradition. And he was, again, he was wanted in France. French authorities have accused him of all kinds of attacks. Now in the U.S., it's not just for the, the money laundering and the cybercrime. Allegedly, funds were laundered through his company in association with a cybercrime group called Fancy Bear. That name may ring a bell. That was a group that was named in the Mueller indictments. Um, when he when he indicted those, I think it was 12 or 13 different Russian nationals in relation to hacking connected with the 2016 elections. So obviously, the United States really wanted to get this guy. He potentially could have had a lot of very valuable information. This group, Fancy Bear, is presumed to be working on behalf of the Russian government. That is not entirely solid information. Uh, there are some analysts who, who disagree, who say that they're just kind of a, essentially freelance and that they're just in, not really driven by ideology, but they're driven by pure greed. So we don't have entirely reliable information as to who's really behind this group Fancy Bear, but it is pretty well known that, again, they've, they've launched attacks in France and Germany um, uh, several other countries, and this group is believed to be behind another attack in the United States. Recently, Microsoft took down some websites in the U.S. that were in connection, supposedly in connection to Fancy Bear. What they were doing was basically setting up these kind of those these phishing scams, where they set up websites that look exactly like another website in order to gain people's personal information. So one of the websites was one that basically mimicked the U.S. Senate, and there was also a couple others that mimicked a couple uh, right-wing think tanks in the U.S., one being the Hudson Institute and another being the International Republican Institute. Um, they're both pretty far right-wing as far as uh, interventionalism. The Hudson Institute also has another group called the Kleptocracy Initiative. And long story short, they do a lot of really good work that has to do with you know international corruption. They essentially want to target the money of all of these different kleptocrats. And a lot of that work is obviously targeted at Vladimir Putin and Russia and that whole regime. And before you know I kind of go any further with this topic. One thing I do want to bring up is when you start talking Russia and hacking, you kind of get a very knee-jerk response 
um, for most people. Again, I'm an independent, and I'm just really just trying to get to the truth. When you get on this topic, you're going to hear, you know, from the left and from the right, some you know, pretty strong polarizing stuff. But when you really get down to it, I mean, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you do have to have some concern when you look at Trump's background. And I'm not saying that he necessarily colluded with Russia involving any kind of hacking, but you do have to look at the financial ties between his businesses and organized crime. You can look at his uh, one hotel property there in Panama and Toronto. Um, there's an investigative journalist named uh, Craig Unger who's coming out with a book. I, I wish I could remember the title right now. But essentially, he says, you know, there were over 1,300 different transactions with his company involving different Russian gangsters. In particular, he names uh, the name Semyon Moglovich. The media calls him the boss of bosses as far as Russian organized crime is concerned. So that's, again, that's sort of really one of my concerns that a lot of many people on the right don't want to acknowledge. Now, on as far as people on the left, I don't, again, we don't have proof that really any of this Russian interference affected the results of the election. And in many ways, it's sort of serving from a distraction away from, in many ways, it's really a distraction from the real election fraud, and that is voter suppression. If you've listened to the, the prior episode I had with Matthew Dunlap, he's the Secretary of State in Maine, that should make it entirely clear that there is basically no real voter fraud in this country. But what there is, there's a serious issue involving voter suppression where hundreds of thousands of people have had their right to vote taken away in this basically draconian effort to try to root out a false problem of voter fraud, which really doesn't exist. Uh, the DOJ recently um, indicted, it was 19 people for voter fraud. Again, it's not the number of one to three million like Donald Trump tried to suggest. There were 19, 19, 19, 19 illegal voters. That's it. That's nothing in a country the size of over 300 million people. With that said, um, when, you, when you talk about you know, Russia and hacking and all these types of issues, a lot of people on the left tend to overreact. They want us to start policing social media via the government. Um, I really don't think that that's the place of the government. There definitely needs to be transparency. Yes, Russia is definitely guilty of trying to affect our politics, but in case you're not aware, so is the United States. We do this all across the world. Um, I'm going to link to a particular article of mine covering that topic. But also, again, I do want to caution people on the left of an overaggression against Russia. We're, you know, we're not looking to, to bring back the Cold War here. Yes, we need to get to the truth, but again, we need to we need to do this the right way. You know, this is off topic, but you know the Democrats—they're—they're they're not; their hands aren't entirely clean either. And again, it's a little unrelated, but I do want to point it out. Um, look at the state of New Mexico and the Democratic leadership in that state. They were successful in changing the the voting practices in their state to where voters can do straight ticket voting, meaning you know if you're a Democrat voter, you can just vote across the board, Democrat, or if you're a Republican voter. You can do the same and it might not sound like that big of a deal but i do have to point out gary johnson the, the libertarian candidate is running for senator in that state 
and he was the former governor of that state. So he obviously has some some strong potential, and that's really, again, to get when you do straight ticket voting, that is really a method of knocking out independent or third party candidates, uh, which we need more third party candidates in this system, not less. Okay, so let's get back to Russia and a lot of the, the awful things that are happening on behalf of their government. You've, you may have heard the name Sergei Skripa in the news recently. He was a former Russian spy, but he was essentially a double agent working on behalf of the English government. Several years ago, he was actually convicted of treason. He was actually released by Russian authorities. It was all part of a, a spy swap. The name Anna Chapman, um, you may not remember the name, but her face was kind of flashed across the news many times. She was a very attractive woman, and that was also sort of part of her cover. Um, she's gone on to become a model, but she was one of the people who were exchanging this spy swap. Well, but back to Skripa, he had been living in the UK for a few years, um, apparently uninvolved in espionage, when he and his daughter were poisoned. Um, the, the British government has directly accused two men who they believe are working on behalf of the Russian government. They've actually used passports with different names in Israel. Um, long story short, those two guys, they're not exactly the sharpest types. They don't seem to have a very good cover story. They just claim to be tourists. But again, these poisonings seem to have been ordered by the Russian government. There was also another poisoning, or presumed poisoning, of another pretty famous Russian national. He's a member of the Russian protest group Pussy Riot. He fell deeply sick while he was in Russia. He was then flown to Germany, where doctors believed that he was probably poisoned. You know, he came very near death. Uh, but his name's uh, Pyotr Verzilov. Again, he, he's an activist. In Russia, he actually owns or heads a, an actual media group there in Russia that is very critical of the Kremlin. And he's, he's behind a lot of investigative work that was looking into the death of three different Russian journalists. And those journalists had traveled to the Central African Republic, and they were reporting on this paramilitary group that was linked with Putin. And again, they reported this information, and guess what? They end up dead. Again, the guy from Pussy Riot has tried to expose this information, and then he ends up being poisoned. So, it's just one of many really disturbing headlines coming out of Russia. One of those stories involves election, apparent election fraud, or a recent gubernatorial election in Russia. It's in the state of Primorsky Krai. The two main candidates were one represented the Communist Party and one represented um, essentially the Kremlin's interests. And the Communist Party candidate was winning with a 5% lead after over 95% of the votes had been counted. But the Communist Party candidate ended up losing. And there's a ton of evidence to suggest that this was election fraud. But that's just, I mean, that's just how things work in, in many parts of the world. There's also another election. This is being recorded on the 23rd. There's an election that will take place when, when it will be published on the 24th. And that's in the Maldives. 
Um, it's a fairly a country fairly small in population. It's thousands of islands that are in the Indian Ocean, close to India. And again, there's a lot of really disturbing news in that country. Um, I'm going to link to a report titled "How Paradise Was Carved Up and Sold." Just to be brief, it basically goes into the the political power structure in that country just explains you know just really deep corruption of their political system there there's been a lot of reports suggesting that there's been widespread fraud in this election and again there there really is a geopolitical battle going on in this country the current president yamin is very much in has really strong relations with china as opposed to the opposition candidate who has really strong ties to India. So you have these two big players on the global stage, and they both really want to assert their dominance in this smaller country. But again, it really looks like the fraud is going to benefit the current president, and he will stay in power. So while we're on the subject of of corruption, I really want to talk about sanctions. There's really a lot of hypocrisy on this issue. I do believe in sanctions. I do believe that they can be used and targeted against individuals. There's a lot of controversy surrounding them. The Magnitsky Act, in which we don't necessarily sanction entire countries, but it's used to target particular individuals within a corrupt government. And in theory, um, that really is the better approach. You really shouldn't punish an entire country. I mean, you should really just punish the, the guilty individuals. But unfortunately, our track record is that the United States has a really very hypocritical history. We'll use those sanctions much more heavily in the countries where we don't have strong geopolitical ties, whereas our allies can get away with all kinds of crimes. And again, I've been focusing a lot on Russia here with this podcast. I do find it kind of amusing that essentially the chief propagandist for the Russian government has been able to, in my opinion, effectively call us out on our own hypocrisy. And he's kind of pointed out that in many ways we use these sanctions. It's really kind of a way for us to sort of cut in on the weapons trading, the global weapons trading racket. Obviously, the Russians, they want, to, they want to send their supplies around the world to their allies, and we want to do the same. <laughs> so there's some truth to that. Now, there's been one recent bill that, again, didn't really get much attention. It doesn't quite have to do with sanctions, but it essentially has to do with just better controls for money laundering, um, which is in the same realm. So I want to talk about a recent amendment that was essentially bipartisan. It was Ron Wyden of Oregon and Marco Rubio of Florida, and it had to do with money laundering and the U.S. real estate market. A few years ago, the Department of Treasury started to input some some fairly minor regulations. In the city of New York, any property valued over $3 million, if it was purchased in full entirely in cash, it could not. It could no longer be done anonymously. Um, in the city of Miami, the same kind of rules were put in place for properties valued over a million dollars. So guess what happened once they started to put these rules in place? In the city of Miami, there was a 95% decrease in all cash sales. So the point I'm really trying to drive home is that 
our real estate market here in the U.S. has essentially been a money laundering hub for all kinds of different criminal organizations. And that does include Russian oligarchs and Italian mafia, drug cartels, etc. So Marco Rubio, you know, and he effectively, you know, drummed up a lot of support for this because in his home state of Florida, there was a, a pretty interesting case of money laundering through the real estate market. The Venezuelan state-owned oil company, PDVSA, has kind of been a target of the U.S. government for a while. It's no secret that there's a whole lot of embezzlement, fraud, and corruption connected with that company. There's recently a Swiss banker who was indicted um, for, for helping to launder funds that have been embezzled from the company. The AP has reported that actually a couple of the stepsons of Nicolas Maduro were also in, investigated as well. But the head of the Ministry of Oil and Mining in Venezuela has been indicted for, for laundering here in the U.S. And He's accused of, of using a $5.3 million condo in Miami. Allegedly, he tried to use his wife's name in order to sort of hide the origins of the money. You know, while we're on the topic of sanctions and geopolitics with, with Venezuela, um, the New York Times had a pretty bombshell report that, again, really didn't get much attention there were a number of different Venezuelan military officials who had a private meeting with, they've had actually multiple meetings with the Trump administration in which of a military coup in Venezuela was discussed. There is precedent this has happened before. I'm talking about back in 2002, the same types of meetings took place. And guess what? There was a military coup that briefly um, brought Hugo Chavez out of power. Obviously, he that didn't la it only lasted like a day, and then he went back into power. But again, this is really all above water. And in kind of my roundabout way, what I wanted to point out was in that report, they also mentioned that some of the members of that meeting, some of those Venezuelan military officials, have been sanctioned by the U.S. government. So just kind of in a circular way, I'm kind of getting back to this issue of the selective use of sanctions by the U.S. government. So essentially, the U.S. government, we want to ignore these sanctions for the military officials in Venezuela who may be corrupt, but they're willing to take Nicolas Maduro out of power. And it's also, again, kind of interesting, um, what I was talking about before, that sort of geopolitical tug of war involving extradition. Because the Venezuelan government wants to extradite a resident of Miami. His name's um, Osman Delgado Taboski. I think he's a Miami resident. He's the person who Venezuela accused of planning a, a recent drone bombing that you probably noticed in the news. I have no idea how accurate that accusation is. Uh, in fact, um, the Venezuelan government also blames uh, the former president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos. I personally think that's absolute garbage. But on the surface, it just seems outlandish to think that Juan Manuel Santos had anything to do with the drone bombing. And it, again, points to the lack of credibility associated with the Maduro regime. You know, we're on the subject of 
of Juan Manuel Santos and extradition, arguably the most powerful drug trafficker who ever lived in Venezuela was a guy named Walid Makled. And long story short, he was actually busted in Colombia. And he had all kinds of information that tied high-level military and government officials to the drug trafficking trade. And he was, again, he was wanted in the U.S. He was also wanted in Venezuela for extradition. But guess what? Juan Manuel Santos handed him over to Venezuela. It's what I kind of like to call drug war diplomacy. But I sort of give you that point that here's this guy who had the goods, who could have been a real ally for the U.S. government to really take down the Maduro, or at that time it was Chavez regime, and Santos handed him over to the Venezuelan government. So just on that alone, it's, it's just unbelievably difficult to believe that Santos had anything to do with the drone bombing in Venezuela. And again, you know, there's all kinds of hypocrisy as far as geopolitics. So that'll really be, it leads to the last story that I wanted to cover, and it has to do with Pakistan. And there's kind of a, a Trump-like person, his name's Imran Khan, who was elected president in Pakistan. Pretty much right after he was elected, he had gone to the IMF for a loan. And Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, fought tooth and nail to try to block them from getting any loans. And I kind of want to just kind of cover, for let me just give you a little bit of background information on Khan. I know that most people aren't really familiar with him. Essentially, you know, he was a, a former cricket player. He was kind of like a, he was really one of the biggest celebrities in Pakistan. Again, he kind of has, there, there's comparisons with Donald Trump, kind of known as sort of like a playboy type. You know, there was a lot of sort of gossip always surrounding who he was dating. But he became a really big force as far as anti-corruption in his country. I could kind of label him what I would call sort of like a Pakistan first platform. In other words, he's very strong as far as nationalism. You know, for example, his party protested against U.S. drone strikes in their country. And he was essentially sort of a, a political outsider. But... With that, he was able to win the support of the Pakistan military and their intelligence services. And with having this, this very you know, strong, essentially, Pakistan first policy, he also has won the support of various terrorist and militant groups in the country. A number of different recognized terrorist groups have openly given Khan their support. So, you know, in the build-up to this election, there was all kinds of violence. The military did a lot of stuff to basically harass oppositional activists and journalists. This outsider actually had the support of the military, and he was able to knock off a couple of essentially political dynasties in the country. The son of uh, Benazir Bhutto was running, also the brother of the former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, his name Shabazz Sharif, was running for president as well. Sharif had actually just recently returned to Pakistan. He had, he, had to he had to flee the country as a result of a corruption investigation that was actually part of the, the Panama Papers. And on the day of his return, there was this very high-level 
terrorist attack by ISIS at a political rally. So just to kind of wrap it up, you know, the U.S. has had a very strong influence in Pakistan for a long time, but that really seems to have changed with Imran Khan being elected president. So back in July, Pompeo was pushing very hard to block IMF loans. Well, just this month, they've now publicly announced that they won't block any loans, and they've had some they've had some private meetings. Uh, but it kind of gets back to that essential root of what we're talking about. In other words, with all of this hypocrisy, there's always so much more behind the scenes that's going on. And, and again, it always it always points back to geopolitics. So again, that's the last story for the day. There, there's a ton of news domestically that you should check out. Um, again, all of my show notes are always on my homepage of BrianSadie.com. Um, please give this episode a five-star rating, share it with your friends. I'm going to have a ton of other really interesting guests here in the future. I hope you've enjoyed those interviews. If you want to go out there and support the podcast, you can support it directly on the Anchor page, but really the best way to do it is to go out there and grab a copy of my three-book series, Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So thanks again, everybody, for listening, and have a great day. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You can have a license. Price is $250,000, plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross. Of all four hotels, Mr. Corleone.